Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, October 17th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Eero, and I'm excited to be taking a trip back to my original stomping grounds in this episode. We've got a Utah endemic for you. A Utah sucker, but not the Utah sucker. No, today we're going to be talking about the June sucker, and I am pumped. (laughs) Talking with us about this fish are two fabulous guests. We've got Russ Franklin, who's the Assistant Program Director for the June Sucker Recovery Implementation Program. We've also got Chris Kelleher, and he's the Recovery Program Director for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. So warm welcome to both of you guys. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Thank you. So Russ, when you and I were chatting ahead of this episode, we talked a little bit about what this really cool native fish looks like and how those looks and the name sucker in there might influence people's perceptions about it. And I was hoping we could kick things off with you helping us imagine what it would be like to have this fish in hand. And I know they look different from juvenile to adult to spawner. So just give our listeners a little insight about this fish and what it looks like, please. If you can picture this fish, and I'm going to close my eyes. I don't know why, but I am going to close my eyes. The full-size fish is around 20 to 24 inches. Um, So it's a decent-sized freshwater fish in a stream. Typically, especially during the spawning runs, they're going to be lighter on bottom. They're going to be darker on top. A lot of times, they'll either have a mottled color or they'll have some stripes on them. The males will. A lot of people think of the name sucker. They think it looks like a carp, and it doesn't look in any way, shape, or form other than they're both fish like a carp. The most distinguishing feature on them, obviously, is the mouth. They're a mid-level planktivore, and they do have low lips on them. Chris, anything that I've left out that you can think of? The June sucker is what's known as lake sucker. There's four species within that genera of chasmistes, and uh, they've evolved in lake systems to feed on plankton in the middle of the water column. So they've got a four forward-facing mouth rather than a bottom-facing mouth like typical suckers do. They're real robust fish, real one you have a healthy one in your hands. There's size to them. One, thank you for bringing up the difference between the lake-adapted and river-adapted suckers. I'd like for you to maybe expand on that some more. And also, how can people, if they run into, say, this sucker, distinguish it from more common suckers in the state? A river sucker is going to be found, of course, in the rivers. But we also have common Utah suckers in Utah Lake. Primarily, the easiest way to tell the difference is the mouth features. And those riverine suckers, they feed off the bottom. They have really papillated lips that sense food on the bottom. And the June sucker's mouth, they don't have the big papillated lips. Their mouth is terminal and forward-facing. As they move through the water column, they just open that mouth, and then they have these gill rakers that collect plankton that then they eat, that that then gets moved down into their stomach. It's not a lot different than any midwater planktivore like the rainbow trout in terms of what it feeds and, and how it behaves. Okay, this place and this lake, we'd love one of you to take us to the Utah Lake System what it was, what it's like now, and how does it fit into the larger context of the Great Salt Lake and Utah more broadly? Thinking about Utah Lake, it 
the size of the lake varies quite a bit depending upon the type of year that we're having. And if we have multiple dry years, the lake level can fluctuate quite a few feet at its deepest on a good year. I want to say we're right around 12 to 14 feet deep. In the drought of the 1930s, it was so dry that you could actually walk across the whole lake. I think the deepest spot in the lake during the drought was about 12 inches of water. And so it's really big, but it's really shallow. It's a very good warm water lake. You know, Utah Lake, it's a lake in the Bonneville Basin. And the Bonneville Basin historically had a huge lake that extended into Nevada and Idaho called Lake Bonneville. And about 10,000 years ago, that lake broke through an area called Red Rock Pass up in Idaho and completely drained the lake. So it was just this huge flood in the history of this species. And that dropped the lake down to what we have now as Utah Lake, which is a freshwater lake that feeds into the Great Salt Lake, which is a salt lake that doesn't have any fish in it. So historically, you know, this was a huge lake system with Bonneville cutthroat trout, June sucker, and a number of other species. But then when that lake receded, Lake Bonneville disappeared. We ended up with a unique fish assemblage in Utah Lake that's found nowhere else in the world. And since then, there's been some more changes, right? What are some of the changes that have happened in more modern times that have impacted that kind of historical fish community? Yeah, huge anthropogenic changes. The state of Utah is the second driest state in the nation, and we've developed our water resources to the maximum extent possible in a lot of places. And one of the reasons June sucker were federally listed as endangered was a result of that water development and the need to provide flows in the tributaries to Utah Lake for June sucker to spawn in. They spawn every spring on the falling limb of the snowmelt hydrograph. Much of the water that's been developed is based on those high flows as well. They fill our reservoirs upstream and that sort of thing. So we really needed to figure out a way of balancing that resource use and development with recovery of this fish. And that's the reason the June Sucker Recovery Program was formed. So water development is only one big change that's happened in the system. Habitats changed dramatically due to the introduction of non-native common carp. And through their foraging behavior, they disrupt the bottom sediments and make it impossible for rooted aquatic macrophytes to grow. We feel that those macrophytes are essential to provide cover from other non-native predators. So one of our big efforts has been to control common carp in the system and to try to get macrophytes back into the system to provide that habitat complexity. Yeah, you guys have removed a lot, correct? Pretty incredible amount. This year, 30 million pounds of common carp will actually get over that threshold this year. I would really like to hear kind of a more in-depth description of all the species that used to be there and the ones there today. I think we had 13 species of fish native to Utah Lake. Utah chub, Bonneville redside shiner, mountain whitefish, Bonneville cutthroat trout were a big one. Primarily, the native fish community 
had a lot of minnow species relative to the total fish in the system. And one major predator, and that was bountiful cutthroat trout. You have very few small fish in the system. You've had a lot of sports fish species introduced. Walleye, white bass, a number of panfish, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass. We're really predator heavy. So that's a challenge that we are dealing with as a recovery program and really exemplifies why we need to have some habitat complexity in there in the form of hopefully rude aquatic macrophytes to balance out predator-prey dynamics. June sucker adult females produce 80 to 100,000 eggs every time they spawn. You know, right now, because of our captive hatchery and augmentation, we've got a population between 30 and 50,000 fish out there. If half of those are females and they're producing 80 to 100,000 eggs every time they spawn, you know, June sucker could in, in and of themselves provide enough to support the predators out there, I think, as long as they have the habitat complexity to avoid predation to yeah. maintain a stable population. We're approaching completion of a habitat restoration project there that's restoring the delta characteristics to that lower river system. And that will provide a lot of that habitat complexity for those early life stages. Was it channelized and now it's becoming more complex? Right. All the tributaries have been channelized into Utah Lake over time. That's another habitat change that occurred with the settlement of the area just to expedite water deliveries and prevent flooding from agricultural areas and that sort of thing. Seems like with such a big, complicated system, there'd be a lot of techniques being used to both restore and also understand it. What are some of those techniques being used and what's some of the science being done here? We've sorted the threats into what we call recovery elements to designed to address specific threats. A big one's water management and development. Another one, non-native fish control, habitat development and restoration, information and education outreach, because we've had negative implications associated with the Endangered Species Act and endangered species in general. And then Utah Lake had a really poor reputation as just a polluted water body in public perception was really low. That's turned around as a result of a lot of the program activities. What are our other recovery elements, Russ? Genetic augmentation. Oh, yeah. Yep. And research, that, that's going to be a big one. They did research and they found that the size of fish that we were stocking, it increased dramatically the survivability if we increased to about 300 millimeters in length. And so... What's that in inches for folks? 10 to 12 inches big. Yeah. So it's a decent sized fish and the survival rates went way up. I think maybe this year, if not this year, next year, we're going to hit the mark where we will have stocked over a million June suckers into Utah Lake. Amazing. Uh, Going from 22 or 24 pairs of fish back in 99. Is that when it was? Yeah. 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 Uh, The late nineties. Yeah. You went from 300 spawning individuals And now we have this year to over 5,000 that are tagged, which, like you said earlier, is probably 
low end estimates, 30,000 to over 50,000 fish in the Provo River. I mean, obviously, we went from endangered to threatened is how well the program has gone over the years. So, I mean, it, it's pretty impressive. And a lot of that is due to these recovery elements that a multi-pronged attack at just not focusing on one area. Uh, currently, I'm sitting down here in the Provo River Delta. I mean, this is 260 acres, roughly, of habitat that is going to be restored here. Well, probably the summer of 2024 is when it'll be pretty close to be completion. And this is going to provide the nursery habitat that we're missing out on the lake. That's cool. So this is some impressive improvement that you've seen in just a matter of decades. How do these recovered numbers stack up against estimated historic abundance? That's a good question. We don't really have quantified numbers of their historic abundance, but when uh, David Starr Jordan, the ichthyologist that toured the West in the uh, late 1800s, visited uh, Utah Lake, he called it the greatest sucker pond in the universe. Oh, that's uh, awesome. That's some marketing right there. When they were out doing their fish surveys, they actually got their boat stuck on a shoal of sucker. Oh Oh my gosh. Wow. That's how thick they were. That's amazing. Was this and is this fish important to the indigenous peoples? Oh, very. I mean, that's a huge amount that you're talking. That's crazy. Yeah, very much. The Native Americans camped on Utah Lake. And I heard from one person once that his ancestors came from as far away as Mexico when June sucker were spawning in the spring to get fish. And they'd salt and dry the fish and then they trade for uh, whatever their needs were as well. At that point, they did have the Utah and the June suckers. They pretty much had almost two months of a lot of fish spawning and going up these rivers. Wow. Pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Do people know how cool this fish is out in your neck of the woods? Yes and no. Are yeah. people motivated to like support these recovery efforts? I was going to say kind of along those lines, like when I was out in Utah, everyone sort of looked down on Utah Lake. But uh, if it was called the greatest sucker pond in the universe when I was out there, <laughs> I definitely would have come and visited. So I'm curious I'd what visit it you're That's doing sweet. in terms of to maybe you could elaborate more on your marketing too. Yeah. When you talk about Utah Lake, there's almost a generational change in the opinion of the lake. And so if you talk to someone who's younger, their views might not be as favorable as the older generation that had a lot of experiences tied with Utah Lake. We do have public outreach. We've done different events. And the more people get to know about the June sucker, the more they get to know about Utah Lake, we are changing the perception. You know, a lot of fishermen around here, they have a good opinion of Utah Lake. And a lot of times... What we face here is a stigma about Utah Lake because you've got a bank on the side and if you don't have any vegetation holding all the soil there and you get constant rains, all the soil keeps running off the side of the hill. Yeah, things are going to look bad. And that's how it is at Utah Lake right now. But realistically, it's a great lake. And the more that we educate people, the better their opinion of the lake. And that impacts the perception of the June sucker. I think guy needs to go catch one. No, I won't target it while they're still <laughs> listed, but yeah. I just was wondering, because if you get those kinds of increases, it might get to the point where really letting people know the difference between the carp and the suckers becomes even more important than it already is. Oh, yeah, for sure. Hopefully we'll get to that point. 
And hopefully we get to the point where they are delisted and recovered and come back under state management authority. I think we'll get there in Russ's career, probably not mine, Mm -hmm. but it's exciting to see how far this program has come. And it's it's really the result of the partnership that was developed and the trust among the partners that have been able to really attack all of these recovery elements that we mentioned in a way that's allowed for this recovery to occur. What's kept you motivated to work with this fish for so long? And I guess just why should people care about this fish versus all the other fish that we've got now out there that are not native to that system? Every biologist that works on any species, I think, develops a passion for the species they're working for and understand the issues that they're dealing with. And I've been a Buffalo Bills fan my whole life, so I always root for the underdog. And if there's an underdog in the fish world, Mm -hmm. it was the June sucker. You know, it's just the way things have worked out with my career, and I've really appreciated it. And, And as much the June sucker as the system it lives in, the Utah Lake system. And it's such a unique system and so many, you know, migratory birds and other species depend on that lake. And it's just been a real highlight of my career to be involved with the people that are working on June sucker recovery and working on improving the lake because it is, it's just a special place. That's awesome. How about you, Russ? Why do you like this fish? The challenge, number one, here. Now, when I'm coming in, I'm coming in as it's gained momentum. Chris started when the momentum was going the wrong way and they turned it around. I'm coming in as, as the fish is, is got, you know, significant momentum going forward. And here is a fish species that is de- obviously all fish are dependent upon water. But here's one that is dependent upon spawning runs to actually be able to live on. So how are you going to help and have spawning runs in the desert? And you couldn't have stacked more challenges against a species from the get-go. And so, yeah, it's been fulfilling and it's great just because, you know, how far it's coming and where it's going. There's, you know, 10 different partners working towards a common goal of rescuing, restoring, and recovering this species. You don't see this very often when so many different entities can actually work together towards a common goal. and it's awesome to be part of something like that. It's like being on one of the greatest sports teams out there because not only are we winning, but everybody is getting along and it's just moving in the right direction. That's awesome. Great that having all those different people working together really becomes an asset rather than having to work across these lines, just holding things up. And in addition to the partnership, we've always taken a solid scientific approach using an adaptive management and learning as we go. And uh, we've learned so much about the species. We knew nothing when we started with the species. We've learned so much and we've been able to apply that because of the efforts of our partners under their different mandates. And it's just been an excellent program to be involved in. That's awesome. That's so cool. We wish you all luck. Thanks for coming on, guys. Okay, folks, we hope you get out there and enjoy the former greatest sucker pond in the universe. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. 
Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>